Beaver Moore. It's been a long, quite a while. I appreciate Brother Hoots and uh, and this church a lot. Uh, our ministry has been uh, involved in a lot of things during that time. And uh, one of the reasons that the pastor wanted me to come by is y'all just recently had a uh, uh, a part in our ministry and sending a special love offering for a radio station that we're working with down in southern Mexico along the Guatemalan border. And I'll have some things to talk about that here in just a moment. Uh, my, like I said, my name is Bruce Martin. I'm here with my wife, Provian. And uh, Provi and I are second, well, she's not a second generation, but she's a bicultural like I am. Uh, my father went to Mexico in 1961, 60 years ago, as a missionary. I was four years old at the time. And uh, we, uh, he began ministering there in Mexico. He's supported by this church for a long time. He passed away March 18th of last year. He did not die of COVID, but is right at the beginning of the COVID problems. And uh, he was 85 years old, and uh, the Lord had used him a lot. So I'm a second-generation missionary. Uh, we have three children. Our daughter, Karen, lives in Weatherford, Texas, is married to a Fort Worth fireman. Our son, David, is in Argentina as a missionary. Uh, he had come out to the States last year in February for a wedding just for about a month and got stuck here for nine months because of the COVID, and was able to get back about the middle of December. So they're back there now ministering in what they can. Of course, a lot of these countries are very limited. I'm sure this morning you heard from Micronesia and how the problems are there, and you can even get back to some places. Uh, fortunately, he was able to get back into Argentina, and uh, they still have a lot of lockdowns. It's a lot, a lot more stringent than it is here but at least they're getting some things done. He can't pass out tracts. They won't allow that. They won't allow you to visit another home. You can't have someone into your home, things like that. But people are getting to the point where now it's been so long. Uh, the pastor was mentioning a few moments ago about fellowship and how we all enjoy fellowship. If you're Latin American, you know you'll enjoy fellowship. And they really like it. They're, they're a people society. And uh, for them... Uh, it gets to the point and say, okay, just forget this. We're going to do what we ever want to do. And so they, my son was telling me, well, they've closed down the parks and places where people normally gather. And he was always using those places to go out and, and minister, to pass out tracts, stuff like that. So they, the government shut them down. They've got police on the streets, kind of keeping people separate. So what are people doing? Well, they're just going to their homes even though they're not supposed to. And there in Argentina, they love meat. I don't know if you know about Argentina, but it's a, they export beef like you would not believe. And they love their meat. In fact, when we were with them there several years ago, I went into a restaurant and a filet mignon was cheaper than a pizza. <laughs> For us guys, that must be heaven almost. <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they have their, their barbecues. And they'll get together. He says, they're doing that. And so we're still, he's been having people over his house, even though it's technically prohibited. And they're not even worried about it. They're just going on about it. And thank the Lord for that. Now, uh, my ministry has been uh, over a lot of places. Uh, I, when we first went to the field 40 years ago, I've been sponsored by the Metropolitan Baptist Church now for almost 41 years out of Fort Worth, Texas. And initially, we moved to Mexico to work with my father for about five years. Then in 1987, we moved to Honduras, Central America, and worked there for over 17 years. And for the last 15 years, we have been working all throughout Latin America. And my specialty is training pastors. And I spend a lot of time doing that. And I will travel to at least uh, six or seven countries a year, if not more, within Latin America, and teach 
And also the ministry that my father started in Mexico has really grown. We've got about 200 churches there in about five or six different Indian tribes. So I still return there to do a lot of teaching. So when COVID hit, of course, at the very beginning of it, the first few months, it did affect us. And some of these countries that I normally go to, I do a lot of stuff in Cuba. And I have not been able to go back. In fact, my wife and I were in Cuba in February. And they shut the country down just a few days after we left to come back to the States. So we barely got out of Cuba before all this happened. But uh, a lot of these other countries, it's very difficult to get back in there. But praise the Lord, Mexico is pretty much open. In fact, you can go to Mexico, don't need a code test or anything like that. They'll ask you when you get there, if you're feeling sick, things like that. They'll take your temperature, and that's about it. So there's a lot of freedom. And once you get out into the rural areas of Mexico, uh, <coughs> they're acting like nothing happened. And they're, they're just doing what they want to do. They're, in fact, in December, I preached a youth camp in uh, southern Mexico, not too far from the Guatemalan border. We had 250 campers, and we did everything normally. No social distancing, no masks, nothing. In fact, they're just saying, we're just going to go ahead. In fact, they said, if we had to shut down, we'd starve to death. Because we're, our situation economically is so, uh, they're, you know, they don't have what we have here. They don't have the resources or the reserves. So they said, we would starve, so we're just going to continue on. And even though, yes, some people have gotten sick, we've lost some people. There have been some pastors that have passed away. A lot of them already had health problems ahead of time. We knew that. And in fact, some of them I was expecting to pass away from other things even before this. But because of COVID, it has accelerated things. But overall, things are doing real well. In fact, I'll be going back in less than a month. Uh, my father's anniversary of his death is the 18th of March. And they've decided to have a memorial service for him. We've not even had a funeral for him yet. Because right when it hit was when everything was shut down. So uh, they wanted to have a memorial service. We were planning to do it in a city, a major city there. They had a big bull ring that we were going to rent that held 6,000 people. And we uh, they wouldn't let us do it because of the COVID thing. So now we're going into one of the villages that has a huge area in one of the churches, a big, like a, a meadow type thing, and they're going to do it there. But this morning I talked with one of the organizers of it and also the head of the radio station. And he says, well, we're getting things ready. But out there there's no internet hardly. And we're trying to get a satellite dish or something because we want to stream everything live when y'all are doing that on the 18th of March. So hopefully we'll be able to get, I had a lot of people from the U.S. that were planning on going, but the problem is not Mexico. The problem is the U.S. Because now if you want to return to the U.S. from another country, you have to have a COVID test before you come back to the States. And you have to have it within three days before your trip to back to the States. And getting that is somewhat of a problem. It looks like there in Mexico City, if you fly out of Mexico City, the airport will have a rapid testing center there that you can get it done pretty quickly. So my wife and I are going. We might end up being there for several days waiting on the test results, but we are planning on going. But a lot of the others that wanted to go with us from the States have kind of canceled out because of the fear of being able to get back home after something like this. So that's just part of what we're dealing with. I, I'm going to go anyway. I mean, that, that if we have to spend two weeks in quarantine, I'll do it because this is a very major event for us. And of course, like we mentioned, the radio station. The radio station now has been going for almost four years. Uh, it was an initiative of the, of the people there in Mexico. Uh, in one of the major towns there where we had a large church, the, uh, they have what they call a county seat. It's like a county seat. So the mayor of that town was elected and he was one of the members of the church there. So he came to the brethren of that, that church and the other church nearby and says, now that I'm mayor, and I can help out the church a little bit. What would y'all like? So they began talking about it. They said, well, if you could help us get a license for a radio station, 
We would really like that because we would like to have a radio station in our own language, in the Indian language called Central. And it was on the top of a large mountain. It's about 8,000 feet altitude. It's a perfect spot to put a big radio station with an antenna. And so we began working on that. It took us about three or four years. But four years ago, they started the radio station. It's been going real good. In fact, it's been so successful that they've now put out three repeater stations throughout the area, covering almost the whole state. It's covering oh, almost a million people right now in all the repeater stations. And, they're, and they have been, we helped them out initially with about $10,000 to get some of the first equipment going for that first transmitter. Since then, they themselves have done it all without any funds from the U.S. But the last time I was there, I was noticing that uh, they were having a lot of problems staying online. In other words, they don't have much good reliability. And in country, at places like this, you have to realize electricity is not reliable. Now, you just found out what that was like here recently. You know how it was here in Texas, right? <laughs> this last week, everyone figured out that, yes, electricity is not as reliable as we thought it was. Well, we take it for granted. But in most of the countries I've lived, in fact, when I was in Honduras, there was a time when they went for about two years where they were rationing electricity where you were getting 12 hours a day without power. Can you imagine doing, going through like that? Well, you, you make do. You plan for it. You do a lot of things that you uh, had to work it out. And so uh, there, it's not quite that much, but they do have a lot of instances where the power goes out. And so uh, they ask, could you help us? Because we need to get better reliability. And the biggest thing they need is generators that are backup generators, what we call backup generators. Now, we're talking about not, not portable ones. We're talking about the larger ones that are giving about 15,000, 20,000 watts of power, usually a diesel or something like that. And what it does is when the power goes out, it automatically starts up and continues providing power, and also uh, for their connections between all the repeater stations. Right now, they're using the Internet, and that's not too reliable. Now, they do use the Internet a lot for their broadcasting. In fact, their signal is being put over the Internet all the time. I don't know. Can you, um, do you have, have you able to get that through or not? It didn't. They were off the air on the Internet when I checked about half an hour ago. So that means that their Internet is down there where they're at. And so what they're trying to do is, since the repeaters are up high on the mountains and they do have a line of sight between all their antennas, they'd like to have a network that will help allow them to connect everything together independently from the Internet so they can never go down, so to speak. And that way, that way they can always be transmitting from all their repeaters and stuff like that. So we estimated we need about $20,000, and y'all have given us a $5,000 offering toward that. And I really want to thank you for it. I'll be going the, uh, the 12th of March. I'll be flying down, and I'll be taking those funds. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have all this set up and working. And so that, that's, my, that's been my, my, my desire and my plan. So I want to thank you for it. Now, despite the fact that I haven't been able to travel to other countries, I'm still pretty busy because, as you were talking about, we're getting uh, uh, you using streaming, using stuff like that. I've been doing that already for about five years. About five years ago, I started using, now before Zoom even, I was using another service, but now for the last four years, I've been using Zoom to teach. I have people that are taking classes with me, and I'll do it over the Internet. In fact, this last Thursday night, I had a class on theology, on Christology, and I had students in Chile, Argentina, Peru, Mexico, and the U.S., all live, about 20 of them. And we were just having a normal class. I could see them. They could see me. They could ask questions. And we've been doing that now for about four years. It's not unusual for us. There are a lot of other places we'd love to get into, but the problem is they don't have good Internet. For instance, in Cuba. I've been making trips to Cuba now for almost 20 years. And uh, it's a country that people really are very interested in. They want to know what's going on there. Well, 
Cuba is changing. Uh, there's a lot more freedoms than we used to have. Uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, there were imprisoning pastors there. And I've had the privilege of sitting down with many of those men that spent years in jail. And they paid a price. But for the last 10 or 12 years, uh, because of their economic situation, Cuba is getting to be in very dire straits. A, a communist country... And this is something we need to realize when we're going, uh, our country going towards socialism as fast as it is. A communist country does not really produce. It lives on what is there usually. For instance, countries that have gone communist have survived if they use up what, what is there. Venezuela, let me give you an example. Venezuela was one of the richest countries in South America because of its oil. Now it's one of the poorest. They've used it all up. Some countries, like Nicaragua, when it, it didn't have much anyway, so it didn't last long. The communist regime didn't last that long there. Cuba has lasted so long, not because of what they have, but because other countries have propped them up. From the very beginning, Russia did a lot for Cuba. It propped them up for over 30 years. And providing with them, for instance, they would produce sugar in Cuba, and Russia would buy their sugar at three times the world price. That's how they were subsidizing them, things like that. When Russia fell, they lost that. Then Europe came in and started building all these resort hotels along the beaches. That lasted about five or maybe ten years. And then when the investors would say, okay, we want to take some of our money back, the government said, nope, it's all staying here. So that dried up. Then Venezuela came in with Hugo Chavez. And he began putting a huge amount of Venezuelan money into Cuba. And that's how it's been going on for a while. Well, now Venezuela can't. So who's helping them? The United States. You say, well, how are we doing that? Well, it's not our government. Under President Bush, he has very strict restrictions. When I travel to Cuba, I have to go through a lot of hoops to get there. From the Cuban government, people are always worried about it. But it's not the Cuban government. It's the U.S. government. Do you realize that our U.S. government has an embargo on Cuba? And when I go to Cuba, I have to get a license from the U.S. Treasury to travel to Cuba. Because otherwise, I'm breaking the embargo and I'm subject to a $50,000 fine from the U.S. government. Now, our church has been doing this for almost 20 years. We're used to doing it. They know, they know who we are. <laughs> and then we work with them. The U.S. Treasury Department, a department called OFAC, Office of Foreign, Asset, Foreign Assets Control. And so we get our license from them and everything. And we have to jump through all these hoops to make sure how much we're spending, get a report, all those kind of things. They want to know what we're doing. And under President Bush... He had a lot of restrictions. It was really tight. Anyone that lives in the U.S. who has a family in Cuba, in other words, you know there's a lot of Cubans living in the U.S., especially in Florida. If they want to send money back to their family in Cuba, under President Bush, they're allowed $300 a year. That was the limit. So not much was going. When Obama became president, he took away all those restrictions. So now, just like a lot of people that come from Mexico to work here, all the illegal aliens, people like that. What do they do when they make a lot of their money? They're sending it back to their family members in Mexico. Well, the Cubans are starting to do that. And when they opened up Cuba, and they had to open up the diplomatic relations, and also began sending all these flights. Remember, they allowed all these, air, these airlines to fly into Cuba? Well, I've been flying those flights. You don't see any Americans on them at all. You know who you see? Cubans living in the States going back to see their family. And what are they doing? They're taking stuff back to their family. So now they're sending all these funds back. But there's a big difference. 
when the U.S. government was providing all these, I mean, when the U.S. government, when these other governments, such as Russia, Venezuela, and others were supporting Cuba, how were they doing it? Well, they were sending it directly to the Cuban government. Any aid they gave them was directly to the Cuban government, and the Cuban government used it however they wanted to. This is different. Right now, the money that's coming from the U.S. is from individuals, not our government, to their family members. It's not going to the government. So when you go to Cuba, you find a disparity that's not supposed to exist, supposedly, in a Cuban country. Because if anyone has family in the States, they're living well. Those that don't are suffering. So you have a big difference in lifestyle, which in a communist country supposedly doesn't exist, right? Everyone's supposed to be even, (laughs) but it's not that way anymore. And so therefore, that is being changed a lot. And also, it requires them to have a lot more communications. When I first started going to Cuba, getting the internet was almost impossible. Only foreigners could get internet. It was only in the hotels, on computers that the government was monitoring the whole time while we were using it. And it was super slow and it cost you $10 an hour. And you could almost read the text. That's how slow it was. Now they've changed. The internet's a little bit better. Even Cuban citizens can have internet, but it's still very expensive. They use it with their cell phones or stuff like that. When I go there now, I can use some internet. But I'm assuming while I'm there that everything I do is being monitored completely. So, but what's happening is now they can communicate using different uh, uh, audio applications with their families as if it were phone calls using the internet. And you, you go to, they don't allow them to have internet in their homes yet. What they do is they have public internet sites, like in parks. So you'll go to a park, and you'll see 50 people sitting in the park, and they all have their phones there. Why? Well, there's a Wi-Fi cell there, and they're all jumping on the Wi-Fi, and they're paying $2 an hour for that. Remember, they're making $25 to $30 a month. So someone from the States has to send them that money almost to do that. And they're talking with their loved ones, or texting, or doing something like that. So communication is getting better. And they're not as isolated as they used to be in the Cuban country. But what people want to know about Cuba is, well, what about the gospel? Well, because of the situation in Cuba that's so economically dire right now, especially since COVID, and I have not been there since, since February of last year, a year ago, so I don't know how bad it's getting. I've gotten reports. I've talked to them constantly. And yes, it is. Uh, there's a lot of scarcity. Uh, there eventually, I'm afraid, they're having some people dying of starvation there. But... Despite all that, because of their economic woes, the government has kind of let churches do what they want to do. In other words, the government doesn't have the resources to go after the churches. They're using all their resources to take care of the people, so to speak. So right now, the churches are able to do a lot more than they did before. They're able to uh, even go out door-to-door witnessing. They're able to pass out tracts. They're able to be much more open in what they're doing. There's still a lot of restrictions. When I go there, I'm not allowed to preach. And the problem is not me. If they catch me, all they say is leave the country. The pastor or leader of a church there that allows me to preach is the one who has to pay the price. So you have to be very careful. But we're getting things done. In fact, the last time I was there a year ago with my wife, I was in four different conferences. And I taught about 20 men in each place. And there's a lot of doors opening up. So we are getting some things done. We have printed... 6,000 Bibles on the island using secret print shops. We've printed a million tracts on the island using secret print shops. 
you know, there's things getting done. I can't take stuff into the country. So I figured, well, if we can't take it, let's figure out how we can produce it there. And we're doing that. And a lot of churches here in the States have helped with that. That's where a lot of our uh, efforts are going to as far as special projects and things like that. So we appreciate y'all's part in that. And uh, the Lord is opening a lot of doors there. There's Because of this, we were looking at the situation of COVID and we think, well, it's just so horrible. But let's look at, this, let's look at the bright side, so to speak. Let's look at what this is doing. It's creating conditions where the gospel will be received readily. Because when people go through trials, when the, the, the security that they've built for themselves has been knocked out, then they're looking for something. And you can take advantage of that. We had a real bad hurricane a little over 20 years ago there in Honduras. It's called Hurricane Mitch. We had about 10,000 people die. And it wasn't from the winds. It was from the amount of water. We had 40 inches of water in two days of rain in the capital where we lived. We didn't have much rain, I mean much wind, but we had so much water. And Honduras is a very mountainous country. So when you have that much water, what happens? Everything is washed down. And so they, people were drowned, so to speak. It was, it was a really bad situation. They, we were living in the capital city, and it was totally isolated. Every single bridge to the capital city was washed out. There was no way to drive into the city for about two weeks. We had air... You know, the airport was open, but outside of that, you could not get in or out. No, you think it was bad here. We didn't have water for a month. We didn't have electricity for almost two weeks. But we survived. <laughs> and, of course, in those situations, you prepare for it. It's not, it was not unusual for us. So you go through those kind of things. And about ten days after the event, we had some churches that, as far as we know, none of the, the Christians... None of the believers died in all the problems in the city. We had about almost 600 people in the capital city that passed away. But uh, some people lost their homes. They were washed away and things like that. So in some of the churches, they were full of refugees. People with all their belongings inside the church. And it was kind of rough. Kind of this last week, people were doing the same thing, looking for warming centers, things like that. Thank the Lord for that. And the Lord worked things out. But... I sat down with several of the pastors in the area and I said, okay, let's, uh, let's evaluate. Let's see what's happened here. Uh, how do you feel? What has been the, the effect on your church from all this? And one of the pastors said, he said, this has been the best thing that's ever happened to us. I said, well, how's that? He says, oh, from a physical standpoint, it wasn't that good. But spiritually, we've gotten more done in the last two weeks than we've done in years. Why? He said, people who've been trying to reach for Christ for years who are very hard-hearted, are willing to listen to the gospel now. So instead of us being worried about it, let's praise the Lord. Because we're getting more done spiritually than we ever have. And you know, we just went through something here in Texas this last week. It was rough. But let's look at it that way. It's an opportunity to reach people that normally we would not have reached. Help people that normally we couldn't have helped because they wouldn't have accepted our help. But now we can, and as we accept, as we, as we sit there and minister to them, we also open up to where they'll listen to the gospel before they would not. So we should never look at these instances and these events like something that's a bad thing. It's an opportunity that God is giving us. And I hate to say this, but the politicians used it. It says, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> well, from a Christian standpoint, we ought to have that attitude in a way. Because God is the one who allows the crisis, and we should use it for His honor and glory. That is something that He wants us to do. Now, I want you to open your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 6, please. 
Second Kings chapter 6, we were reading verses 13 through 23. Now, we're talking about the northern kingdom. This is Israel, the kingdom that separated from Judah. And of course, it was a, not a good kingdom. All their kings were evil. And uh, their prophet was both Elijah and Elisha. And in this portion of the scripture is Elisha, the prophet. And their capital was in Samaria. Not Jerusalem, but Samaria. And of course, because of their sin, God had allowed many of their enemies to attack them and create problems. And one of the enemies that they were finding to have a lot of problems with was their northern neighbor, Syria. Interesting that still today, Syria is an enemy of Israel. It has not changed in 3,000 years. (laughs) They are still battling. And the king of Syria was named Ben-Hadad. And he was attacking Israel. But what happened was, Elisha was informing the king of Israel of what was going to happen. And every time that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, would set a trap, Elisha would advise the king of Israel where the trap was, and he would avoid the trap. And the king of Syria was getting upset. And he began to think, well, I've got a spy in my palace. Someone is informing on what we're trying to do. And he began to look for that spy, and his servant said, no, no, great king, that's not what's happening. They have a prophet. His name is Elisha, and he is telling them everything. They, he even knows what's happening in your bedroom. And let's start reading here when, when, when Ben-Hadad hears about that. So when Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, heard about this prophet that was causing all these problems, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 13, and he said, Go and spy where he is. There was this, who, is this, who is this prophet, Elisha? That I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master! How shall we do? And he answered, Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, Round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite these people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. The Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? 
set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. When they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. The Lord gave them a great victory. But one of the things that's very interesting to me is the aspect of the young man that was Elisha's servant. We don't know his name. He just says a young man. And what I'd like to take some time and think about here this afternoon is what he saw. And the reason I want to bring that out is that, you know, we live in a world where people are not aware of reality. You ever thought of that? I mean, as I read the news reports, as I see people talking, I sit back sometimes and my mouth agape and I say, are people really that stupid? (laughs) Can people really do, I mean, are they that unaware of what's happening in this world? Are they so self-centered that they're not even aware of what's really going on around them. I recently read the story of a young lady up in the Northeast who was getting a job. She just got a new job, and she was a copywriter. In other words, she was writing material for this business. And as she was providing this copy, she had a word that she misspelled. And the editor brought it to her attention and said, no, this, this word is misspelled, you need to correct that. She said, well, that's the way I spell it. And he said, well, it doesn't matter if that's the way you spell it. it. This proper spelling is this. She says, but no, I want to spell it that way. And of course, the editor's mouth was agape. And he says, well, this doesn't work this way, you know. Uh, we already have standards and there's a dictionary. And it's, we've already set how this word is supposed to be spelled. And she says, I don't care. I want to spell it that way. And he told her, well, if this is, going to, if this is what's happening, you're not going to work with us anymore. So she had her mother call her boss and let her, and her mother just let him have it for, for not allowing her to spell the word like she wanted to. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, that's what we're getting to. We're living in a world where reality is so twisted that no one even knows what's really true anymore. And this young man thought he'd know the truth. Now, Dothan was a small town. It was a village, really. It didn't have walls to protect it. And when the king of Assyria, Ben-Hadad, sent his army, they didn't really have any protection. And of course, when this servant woke up in the morning, and apparently he was a good servant because he was up early, <laughs> and he was out doing his chores, and when he got out there, he realized, we're surrounded by the enemy. And he began to get worried and think that we have no hope. You know, what's been going on the last year and a half in our country We might think that's what's happening. We might begin to get worried and say, things look really rough. And from a certain point of view, they might. But we really need to be aware that God has to open our eyes to what's really going on. And instead of us all being worried, and remember what the the man of God told this young man, he says, fear not. That's the key. Let not fear control us. I'm not going to let fear control me. Well, are are we limited to what we can do? Maybe. We find some other way of doing it. One of the things I've realized as being a missionary and traveling so many countries, working in so many cultures, there's always a way 
to reach people. As was mentioned earlier today, as the, uh, Brother Tierbach was talking about how y'all are having fellowship and how y'all are enjoying it, and, and that's a great thing. And I hope, you, I hope this church never loses that. Because it's important. But people are just that way. God made us to be that way. You realize that? That's part of our nature. What is the, what is the way, what do they do in prisons to punish a prisoner that is very rebellious? They have solitary confinement, right? Why is solitary so bad? <laughs> because God did not make us to be solitary. That is the worst thing that can happen to someone. And so, therefore, we have to understand that no matter what's going to happen, we're going to find a way to have fellowship. We're going to have a way, find a way of getting back together. doesn't matter what, this, what, what the world is saying, what the authorities want us to do, what the devil wants us to, wants to happen. We still can do what God wants us to do. And he wants us to be in contact with others. One of the things about a church that is very mission-minded, and I pray that this church continues to be mission-minded as it always has been. I praise the Lord for you. But you realize that's what, we are, that's what we always have to have before us. We are looking to have relationships with people around the world. You know, there was a lot of things going on here. And what he saw, this young man, was things that were not reality when he thought they were very much reality. He saw danger when there really was deliverance. Because what was around Elisha? All God's chariots of fire and his angels, and they were much more powerful than the Syrian army. He saw trouble instead of triumph. He saw problems instead of solutions. He saw weakness instead of strength. He saw enemy instead of the Lord. That's a lot of problems. You know, right now with our political situation, we concentrate on that, and all we're worried about the enemy. You know where our sight should be on? On the Lord. Because he's the one that's going to solve everything. He saw fear rather than faith. Now, you know what's really interesting for me is that during this passage, Elisha prayed three prayers. Three different prayers. Everyone had to do with sight. With seeing. And what my message to you this evening is that We need to be seeing what God wants us to see. Not what man wants to see. Not what the media wants us to see. Not what the news organization wants to see. We want to look what God wants us to see. And God controls what we see. You know, let's be honest. You think you can control everything you see, and that's not true. You realize that sight is not as reliable as you think it is? One of the things that, you know, when I, when I began, uh, God called me, I, I got saved at the age of eight. God called me in the ministry at the age of 12. And one of the things I wanted to do when I was a young person was to be a missionary pilot. So I started really early. I began flying. I, I got my license. I, I did things. And the Lord allowed me to have for a short time in Honduras a, a small airplane. My father used an airplane quite a bit in Mexico. So I was around it a lot. So I had to do what they call instrument training. And one of the things they teach you is not to trust your sight. Not to trust your feelings. Because a pilot that does that dies. What do you trust? Your instruments. You have faith in your instruments. Because 
your feelings will betray you. Your, your, your senses. You think your senses are really that reliable? Ask any policeman when he goes to a crime scene and begins to investigate the eyewitnesses and they'll give you each one a different story. And they'll swear up and down, that's what I saw. Do you realize, even from an aspect of physics and science, that your eyes are not really seeing everything you think you're seeing? If you study the aspect of the design of our eyeball, it's really interesting. You know, our, our eye is, an, is a ball. The back of our ball is not flat. It's a curve, right? It's like a parabola, we call it. Kind of like a, uh, 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 a satellite antenna, right? And the thing about something like that is, when you have a satellite antenna or anything like that, there are telescopes and things like that, they have a blind spot. I don't know if you realize that. Now, if your parabola was perfectly uh, even, the way it should be, the blind spot would be right in the center. But God did not make our eye completely even. He had it a little, built a little lopsided. And the reason God made the eyeball a little bit lopsided is that blind spot is not in the center, it's off to the side. And therefore, there's an area that our eyeball cannot see. You think, well, I don't see a black spot in my eye. Well, our brain is really amazing. Our brain fills in the information, even though we don't realize it. Now, they've been able to prove this. They've taken subjects and put them in front of a, a big panel with all these lights, and they'll individually turn on these lights, and the respondent says, yeah, I see that light. And all of a sudden, they'll turn on a light, and the respondent says, I don't, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't see, he doesn't see the light turn on. It's his blind spot. Because the, but he doesn't think it's blind. Why? His mind is filling in that thing from the information it had from before. Our mind can do some really weird things. They did an experiment one time where they took a special set of lenses and put it on a man and it created everything to be upside down. And he had to have that on for several days. Can you imagine walking around seeing everything upside down? You know what happened? After two or three days, his brain flipped it. His brain automatically flipped the image and he was seeing everything normally. But wait a minute. When he took off the lenses... Everything was upside down. (laughs) And he had to go through another two to three days for his brain to bring it back to normal. It's amazing what our brain can do. But sometimes our brain can fool us into thinking we're seeing things when we really don't see them. That's why we have this book, people. That's why we trust in this. Because it is true. It is reality. And when you get to know this book, you know what's really going on. That's why we ask the Lord to open our eyes. Not our physical eyes, our spiritual eyes. To see what's really going on. And we need to ask the Lord constantly, do this for us. So like I said, Elisha had three prayers that had to do with sight. The first prayer was that God would open the eyes of his servant. To see the real thing that was going on as far as the spiritual army that was surrounding and protecting Elisha. But then the other two prayers were for the enemy, the Syrian army that had come. His first prayer was that they be blinded. 
You know, there's some times when God has to do that. As a missionary, I do that quite a bit. I am constantly asking the Lord, please blind certain authorities. When I go to Cuba, in fact, we have a prayer chain on the day that I go to Cuba, and I have a certain time, I know I'll be landing, I have to go through immigration and customs. We'll have a prayer chain here in the States praying for me, because that's the most critical time if they're going to let me in or not. And where we're praying, we're praying that the authorities' eyes be blinded. About two years ago, we had a big project in Argentina. My son was already living there as a missionary. And they had the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And we've been planning for about two years. We had a group of about 25 people from the states going down. We planned that they were going to have over 180 countries coming from around the world to celebrate the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And because of that, we thought this would be a great opportunity for evangelism. Not just for Argentina, but for getting the gospel out to the whole world. And we were going to have tracks in about 30 different languages to pass out to the athletes and all the other support personnel that were going there. But we had a lot of trouble. My son was already there. He was trying to get the authorities to allow. We had a whole container of literature. We were given hundreds of thousands of chick tracks and other types of tracks that we were going to take down there. And we were going to ship them by boat. And they wouldn't let us do it. They put all kinds of problems they said, no, we got to have uh, the name and the serial number of the printing press and the chemical composition of the ink and who made the paper. They went through all these things, and it was getting really ridiculous. And we were getting to the day, it was in October and uh, of 2019, and we said, what are we going to do here? It was getting really ridiculous. Oh, 2018, I'm sorry. It was getting very ridiculous. And we were thinking, how are we going to work this out? And finally... We decided it was our plan C. We went through plan A, plan B. None of them were working. So plan C was this. Everyone that was going down from the States would just take on their carry-on, their own personal things, and their check baggage, which they allowed two bags, was going to be literature. About three days before everyone was going down, I went down there. I went early to just do a trial. And I took, I paid not only my, my two bag, I paid an extra two bag. I paid about a $500 in extra baggage fees. <laughs> and I took four big bags, duffel bags, full of tracks. And I thought to myself, now what is going to happen when I get to the airport and they see what I've got? I've got so much luggage, they're going to definitely check me out. And I was praying about it. And as I got on the plane, I realized that, ooh, it was full of athletes from all over the world. They're coming from Japan, from other countries. They're all going down for the, for the Olympics. So the plane was full of athletes. I said, well, that's great. We landed, and because there were all these athletes coming in, the airport authority said, just walk on through. They didn't check anybody's baggage. Because all the athletes had all their sports equipment, all this other stuff. So they said, we're not checking anybody. Just walk, no customs check of any kind. Just walk on through. I got through. <laughs> the Lord answered our prayer. He blinded the eyes of the authorities. He will do it. But then the third time that the Lord prayed, that the Elisha prayed, God's man prayed, he says, open the eyes of my enemy. And that was when they were in the midst of Samaria to see what was really going on. And they opened their eyes to see their true condition. And you know, that's the thing we should be praying for the most, is that God would open the eyes of the people that we know, our loved ones, our neighbors, people around the world that don't know Christ, to truly see their condition before God and how dangerous it is. How that they're facing death. But also that they see that there is grace. 
Because Elisha showed grace. Remember the king of Israel said, Shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? I says, No, no. Quite the contrary. Feed them. And let them go. I'm sure the king was just sitting there mumbling to himself and saying, this is crazy. I have a chance of a great victory and this man is not allowing me to have it. But you know what? He had a great victory. Because it says Syria never sent anyone again after that. Why? Because the victory was not on the battleground. It was in the mind. You know, our battleground is not a physical battle. It is a spiritual battle. We have spiritual warfare going on. And we need God to open the eyes of those that we're ministering to. How often am I praying for loved ones that I have that don't want to accept Jesus Christ, that they would open their eyes and see their true condition before God? How much should we be praying the same prayer that Elisha did? Not so much to open our own eyes, but that should be a thing. We should ask God to open our eyes to see things. We should also ask God to open the eyes of everyone around us to see their true condition. So that they might come before the Lord. You know, this is a very good example of how we live for the Lord. This also shows us what true reality is. Most of the people around this world are not even aware of what's going on. They don't know what reality is. We have a blessing. We have a benefit. God has opened our eyes. Praise the Lord for that. When the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, He makes us see things we never saw before. What are we going to do with that? It also gives us a responsibility. Because not only does this involve a situation of, well, now I know what's happening, it also talks about those who are at the gates who are watching for the enemy. And when you see the enemy come and you don't do anything about it, you're responsible. Because you're seeing things that the rest of the city is not seeing. And you're supposed to sound the alarm. Are we seeing what's really happening? And as we see it, are we sounding the alarm? Not to ourselves, because we're safe. But to those who are in danger of not knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. That should be the true concern that we have. Our Heavenly Father... I thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. I thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture and for the illustrations that you've given us with this young man, but also with all the other that were involved. But thank you for Elisha, Father. Thank you that he had the wisdom, the vision, the understanding, the discernment to see things as they truly are. I pray, Father, that I might do the same thing. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for this church that it might have a vision for the world. See things as they really are. And I thank you that you've done that in their, in their ministry, and they've been reaching out to the whole world. But Father, most of all, I pray for those that are around us that they've been blinded by the devil. They don't see what's really going on. I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of those that are around us to see their true condition before God, that they might come before you humbly, to receive the grace that you have, the spiritual food that you can give them if they only submit and accept what you have for them. Now, Father, as we take this time to reflect and to respond, use it, Father, for your honor and glory. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.